with us. Um, welcome. Uh, welcome to the Hampton Roads Church. We uh, try, I'm not saying we're perfect at it, but we try to live by the Bible, uh, follow Jesus, um, place our faith in Him, and are grateful and thankful for Him uh, saving us and forgiving us of all of our sin. Obviously, we get together on a weekly basis to come together to worship Him, to celebrate communion. And to um, have the preaching of the word, which is what we're going to do right now. So if you could please turn with me to John chapter 9. I'm glad to hear that the father-daughter dance went well and that uh, Liana ate her first chicken nugget. That's great, Uh, Aaron. um, Brooke and I didn't get the chance to go. We actually went out to eat uh, because that's kind of what Brooke is into, the food. So we we just went and got something to eat and had a good time. But anyway... Uh, John chapter 9, I'm just going to dive right on in here because, uh, one, it's 1130, and two, we're going to go through the entire chapter of John chapter 9 today because it is one kind of uh, conversation, one dialogue, one thought, and I'm going to do my best to to work uh, through this chapter. So bear with me. Uh, John chapter 9 really is a an illustration of everything that happened in John chapter 8. John chapter 8 was about this uh, fest or festival, 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 festival of tabernacles. And uh, Jesus has uh, this uh, argument with the the Pharisees at the time. And he's really talking about being the light of the world. And as he's talking about being the light of the world, we see how blind the Pharisees really are. So now in John chapter 9, Uh, John records this story that really serves to illustrate everything that Jesus had just talked about in John chapter 8. This is the sixth miracle or sign that John brings up in his gospel out of seven. And the story contrasts those who can see with those who cannot see. And the irony is that those who think they can see are the ones that are blind And those who are blind are the ones that Jesus makes to see. And so this is good news for those of us who are willing to confess our ignorance and our blindness. In other words, if you're willing to admit that there's a lot of things that you don't know about life, about God, about the church, about Jesus, well, hey, you're in a great place. Um, Unfortunately, though, if you're self-assured, self-reliant, self-confident of everything that you do know, well, you're in a bad place, unfortunately, okay? And so what we hope that you'll get out of the sermon this morning is uh, reassurance, reassurance about Jesus that he's constantly coming after us, seeking us, and that he wants to open our eyes. Um, But perhaps you'll also get a caution um, if you are self-assured in who you are in Christ, in a bad way, that is. So let's go ahead and pray. And like I said, we'll just jump right on in. Father, we love you, we praise you, we give you thanks. Uh, We lift you up as we sing, as we pray, and as we read your word this morning, uh, knowing that you are the only sovereign God, that you're the only one that can save us and protect us from harm. You're the only one that passes us from this life into the next and God, we look forward to that future glory that we all get to have with you, the future time when we'll be risen from the dead, when we get to see you face to face. And God, we just pray and ask that right now that you would open our blind eyes so that we can see you, 
But at the same time, Father, keep us humble. Help us to never arrive and get to the place of where we know for sure that our eyes have been opened. God, we love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so here we go. Two points, okay? Well, two points and some thoughts. You know me. I've always got, like, you know, extra stuff thrown in there. So, one, if you get my slides up there, too, the slides are really, really plain on purpose, okay? Title of the lesson is Sight for the Blind and Blindness for the Seeing. First point is Jesus helps the blind to see. Look here with me in... Uh, Verse one, typically I would read the entire thing and then go back and kind of preach through it today because it's so long. I'm just going to read a couple verses, comment, couple verses, comment, couple verses, comment until we're done. Okay. so verse one, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, the interesting thing here is that Jesus saw this man. Jesus saw him. He took notice of him. He didn't overlook him, even though I'm sure this man was used to being overlooked. Blind people didn't have a way to create an income back in the first century. They barely have a way today. And so this guy would have been off in a corner someplace, uh, sticking out his hand, hoping that someone would notice him. And Jesus saw him. The other thing that we see is that the man did not cry out to Jesus like so many other people did. And so Jesus, he sees us in the same way that he saw this man. We are not insignificant. We are not tossed to the side. Regardless of where you are or whatever your station is in life this afternoon, you matter to Jesus. He sees your physical pain. He sees your mental and or emotional pain. He sees your bank account. And he cares. He sees us. Here in verse 2, the first question out of the disciples' mouths is, well, who sinned? Now, in some cases in the Bible, physical suffering and death are connected directly to that person's sin. 1 Corinthians 11 Paul uh, talks to the church there in Corinth and he says some of them had been dying. He says, basically, you're dying because you haven't been recognizing each other in the communion. There's divisions amongst you. You're not resolved. You're taking communion. And because of that, he says, that's why some of you are falling asleep and are, are falling asleep in something else. I can't remember. Anyway, getting sick. That's what he says. Some of you are sick and falling asleep. First Corinthians 11. James 5. James says to confess your sins. And pray that you may be healed. The implication there is that perhaps your sin is what's causing your sickness. Okay? Now, the Jewish rabbis taught that children could sin in the womb. Uh, Genesis chapter 25. uh, We know about Jacob and Esau, that even in the womb, what happened? There seemed to be a struggle that was there. And, And as the children were born... Uh, Jacob comes out grasping his brother's heel. And so the, the Jewish rabbis taught that, see, well, Jacob, he must have been sinning in the womb because he was competitive before he even came out, right? I, I don't believe this, okay? Uh, Psalm 51 is another misinterpretation where David says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And so this was the thinking of the Jews at the time. 
But for us, we love to assign blame. We love to fault find when things go bad. Somehow it makes us to feel resolved. If we can figure out, well, what was the cause of the thing that made this thing go so off kilter or get off the rails? And they say that two types of people show up at accidents. One is the police, of course, right? The other is the paramedics. The, the police are there to find out what went wrong and who's at fault. The paramedics are simply there to help those who have been injured. We need both at a crash scene. But in this passage, Jesus is less like the police in finding fault. He's more like the paramedic. And we've got to be that way as well. Verse 3, it says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so physical suffering is not connected to the person's sin in every case. In this case, Jesus said that it was neither him nor his parents who sinned, and it happened so that the works of God might be shown in his life. And not that God caused him to be blind so that God could glorify himself. I mean, that'd be kind of malicious. But Jesus is saying that God can take any bad situation and use it to and for his glory. That includes your bad situation. God can use that for his glory and to his glory. I don't know why you're in the bad situation that you might be in this afternoon, but I know somebody that can get you out of that bad situation, and his name is Jesus Christ. Here in verse 4, Jesus says, As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And so Jesus loved to do the works of his Father. But I want to call your attention to, again, verse 4. He says, As long as it is day, it says, We must do the works of him who sent me. He didn't say, I must do. He said, we must do, talking to the disciples that were there with him, and also, obviously, to us. And this part where Jesus says, night is coming when no one can work, uh, maybe he's referring to his death, maybe he's referring to a, a particularly dark time in our history that is to come, I don't know. But Jesus is simply saying that we must do his works. What is that work? Well, it was what Jesus was about to do. He was about to help this blind man to see. And so opening people's eyes, that is the work. Helping them to see the light of the world in Jesus, that is the work. Our work is not to find the cause of the suffering. Like Job's friends. Oh, we know why this is happening to you. Again, shifting blame, finding fault, right? That's not our job. Our job is to minister to the suffering of that person. Not to constantly find fault, but to help, to heal, to find solutions, and to point people to Jesus Christ. We've got this backpack drive coming up. We've got our toy drive that I'm sure will be coming up later on in the year. Um, our special contribution just passed, and these might seem like small or insignificant things to you, but for the child receiving it, what that says is, someone sees me. Someone cares about me. Someone knows what I'm going through. And that someone ultimately is Jesus. 
And so not just 2,000 years ago do, did the apostles need to do these works, but we need to do these works of God today, healing people, opening the eyes of people who are blind to Jesus Christ. Verse 6, after saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Now, Jesus could have healed him with his touch. Jesus could have just spoken the word and the man would have been healed. Jesus did that many other times in the Gospels. But in this case, he heals the man by making mud, spitting on the dirt, mixing it together and then putting it on the man's eyes. This wasn't the first time that Jesus used his saliva to heal, and I know that it sounds gross, but believe it or not, saliva was considered as medicinal amongst the first century Jews, and it was actually considered an honor, believe it or not, if a rabbi were to use his spit to somehow place it upon you, not, I mean, not just like disrespectfully, you know, hawking, you know, not like that. But if he were to use his his spit to somehow heal you, that was considered an honor. It was accepted, and in some cases it was even expected for the rabbis to do this. Look at the man in verse 7. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. He was obedient. He simply did what Jesus said to do. He wasn't all hung up with, wait a minute, you're putting spit on my eyes? Like, you're not supposed to do that, right? He wasn't all hung up with it. He wasn't like Naaman, 2 Corinthians 5 or 2 Kings 5, right? Naaman was all complicated, you know, when, when the prophet told him to go and wash in the Jordan. He's like, oh, well, you know, I thought that you'd wave your hands over me and there's other rivers I could dip myself in and every man. Just go on and wash yourself. You see what I'm saying? And that's what happened here. The man was just simple. Go and wash. OK, I'll go and wash. And he did it. Helping the blind to see is Jesus's most common miracle. I counted 10 times in the Gospels that it was mentioned that Jesus had healed blind people. And in the Old Testament, it is God himself who is associated with opening the eyes of the blind. And in a number of passages from Exodus to the Psalms to Isaiah, we see the Lord opening the sight of the blind. And this was considered to be messianic activity for someone to open a blind man's eyes, something that only God does. In Isaiah 35, The prophet writes and said, strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. 
It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Now, I know I read a whole big portion of that, and the only significant part in relation to our point is that God opens the eyes of the blind, but I read the rest of it because I thought it was really encouraging to hear what God is saying here. And so this man's blindness from birth is like the sinful nature that we are all born with. It's like the problems that plague us in these few short years that God gives us to live. But this is why Jesus came. He came to see us, to notice our blindness, and to heal us. In verse 8, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I'm the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know. And so this guy, he's incredibly just simple. He's pragmatic. He didn't even come back yelling about being able to see. The guy had never seen in his life. He's seeing for the first time all the other stories that we hear about in the Bible, people being healed. They come back. I can see. This is amazing. Jesus did it. This guy, he just kind of walked back. What's up, y'all? Good to see you. That was it. They didn't even know it was him. He had to say, no, it's me. It's me. I, I was that guy. And we begin to see how he saw Jesus and how his view of Jesus began to change. Even though he had just been healed by Jesus, he barely knew and understood who Jesus was. So in this first testimony that he gives in verse... uh, Sorry. Where am I? Uh, Where it says... There we are. Verse 11. I apologize. He replied, the man they call Jesus. You see how like distant he is from Jesus? Like it's this man and these guys call him Jesus. He didn't even call him Jesus. They call him Jesus. That's how he viewed Jesus from the very beginning. And so I'm so sorry. I like skip the paragraph here. I don't think that this man would have even been able to pick Jesus out of the crowd. He had never seen Jesus before. Jesus healed him or put the mud on his eyes while he was still blind. He went and washed. He came back. He's seeing all these people. He'd never seen anybody's faces before. Jesus could have been there and he would have never even known. Second point. Jesus blinds those that already see. Jesus blinds those that already see. Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. How would you like to have friends like that? You get healed, 
your friends are around you asking you, hey, how did you get healed? You're like, man, this guy named Jesus, you know, he, he helped me out and opened up my eyes. They're like, well, where is he at? I don't know. Come on, man, you need to go over to the Pharisees. Let's go talk to them. I wouldn't want to have friends like that. But unfortunately, he did. Verse 14. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. Jesus did stuff like this on purpose. He did it in John 5. He's doing it here again in John 9. He would do these miracles on the Sabbath for the purpose of provoking a conversation with the Pharisees to expose their religiosity. And so he's doing that once again here. Verse 15. Or, yeah. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Again, really simple. And he sticks to his testimony. And now the testimony has gotten even shorter than the first time. The first time he said, you know, there's a man they called Jesus, made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Salome and wash. So I washed, I went and washed, and then I could see. This time it's shorter. And he says, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and now I see. Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. The proud and religious Pharisees were blinded by their view of the Sabbath and their theological prejudices. So once again, they could not see the good in what Jesus had just done, Because Jesus had done it in their minds at the wrong time and in the wrong way. They didn't rejoice that the man's eyes had been opened. What? You've been born blind and now you're that guy that I used to see begging? You can see now? Like, that's amazing. They didn't do that. Who was the guy? When did that? The Sabbath? Hmm. Let's have a conversation about this. All they could do was get triggered and upset that it didn't go according to their rules and their traditions. They said this can't be from God because it doesn't fit into our box. And so Jesus' miracle blinded the Pharisees. Their hearts grew harder instead of softer. They ignored the truth that Jesus must not have been a sinner. I mean, look at the logic. How can a sinner perform such signs? I mean, it was clear. It was obvious. Verse 17. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. And so now after the man has given his testimony two times, Jesus goes from being the man they call Jesus in this guy's mind to now he's the prophet. And as he stands and he testifies about the undisputable fact of what God has done in his life, his faith grows. He gets more connected, more attached to Jesus. For us, church, we've got to speak up about what God has done in our lives. We've got to speak out that he has seen us, that he has noticed us, and that he's healed us from our blindness. Everybody in here has a story about what God has done in your life, in your friends, your families, 
your co-workers, your neighbors, they need to hear the story. They need to hear that Jesus can salvage their marriage like he salvaged your marriage. They need to hear that Jesus can deliver them from an empty weekend of partying like he's delivered us from those same empty weekends. They need to hear that Jesus can deliver them from crazy love relationships that we've all been in, well, most of us have been in, and that Jesus can deliver us from loneliness, which I know we've all experienced, from abuse, from insecurity, and from fear. But they need to hear it from your story. It doesn't have to be a complicated story. Again, consider the man. His story is getting shorter and shorter. He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and now I see. That's it. Your testimony doesn't have to be much more complicated than that. It really doesn't. When uh, we went to Trinidad and they asked me to do that, uh, is, God, is God real class? They, they sent me on WhatsApp. They said, Tony, can you send us a little paragraph of what you're going to be talking about? We need a little summary. I sent them back about eight words. And the words were, atheist engineer turned Christian minister shares his story. Period. <laughs> and that was it. And they had this half-page flyer, all this white space, because they didn't have words to put in. All they had was my little eight words that I put on there. People came out to hear about the atheist engineer who's now a Christian minister. They heard my story. It doesn't have to, you don't have to be eloquent to stand up for what God has done for you. When I went, I just simply talked about my life. This is what God has done. You've all got a story. You've got a testimony. Tell people about it. They can't say anything to you. It is your story. It is your experience. And nobody can say, well, God didn't do that like they tried to do with this man. You tell them, yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. I used to be this way and now I'm that way. And that's really all you got to say. That's it. And watch your faith grow and watch people's lives change. Verse 18. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he's our son, the parents answered. And we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That's why his parents said he's of age. Ask him. Sometimes all you have is your testimony. For this man, that was all he had. Even his own parents wouldn't stand with him. Verse 24, a second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And his testimony continues to shrink. He stands on a simple fact. I once was blind, 
But now I see. And you cannot take that away from me. They wanted him to say that it was all a lie. They wanted him to say, well, you know what? I really, I never really even was born blind. I've been seeing my whole life. And I've been, you know, fronting and faking, sitting over there in the corner the whole time. Jesus didn't really open my eyes. That's what they wanted him to say. But he couldn't say it because it wasn't true. But that's what they wanted. The man says, you know what? I'm not about arguing your theology because they wanted to say, say that this man is a sinner. He's like, I don't even know about all that stuff. I don't even know about it. I was blind. Now I see. You deal with that. And defending and speaking about what Jesus did for him, it fuels his faith. It gives him more confidence. He goes on the offensive in verse 26. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? <laughs> then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. You see, his confidence is growing, right? He's defending. He's standing up for his faith. He's talking about his testimony, talking about what God has done in his life. And as he gets more and more opposition, he continues to stand on the simple fact. I was blind, but now I see. And as he does that, his faith grows. His faith increases. Some of us, we wonder, why isn't my faith growing? It's because you're not talking about it. You got to say something about it. Say what God has been doing in your life. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. They can't change your story. They can't make it something that it's not. All you've got to do is talk about the truth. They claim to be disciples of Moses, but they were really just disciples of their own human tradition, their rules, their knowledge, and their desire to control. And they were blinded by it. Verse 34, to this they replied, you are steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? Their hearts are just getting harder and harder. They're growing more and more blind. And they throw him out of the synagogue. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when, they, when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? The man had been thrown out of the synagogue, but... Here comes Jesus, that hound of heaven. Look again, when he found him. Why did he find him? Because he was looking for him. The hound of heaven is on the trail. He's sniffing. He's looking for the man. He's looking for you. 
and he will find you. Verse 36, who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. The man has been healed of his blindness, but he doesn't claim to see. He sees his need for help and he asks for it. Tell me so that I may believe. And in verse 37, Jesus says, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Again, remember, this would have been the first time that the man would have seen Jesus' face. In verse 38, then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. He immediately and simply puts his faith in Jesus. No arguing, no convincing, no apologetics, no exegesis, no hermeneutics, no four to six month Bible studies. He believes and he worships a very simple faith. And if you notice the progression, Jesus in the man's mind goes from the man that they call Jesus to the prophet to Lord. Because his faith is increasing. Verse 39, Jesus said, for judgment, I've come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. And so Jesus gives the point and the summary of this whole event. The reason of his coming, it is to give sight to the blind and to make blind those who claim that they can see. Verse 40, some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what? Are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Jesus blinds those who already see. It's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. Jesus said that he did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Three thoughts as I close. One, he blinds those that claim to see. There is a danger in thinking that we've got it all figured out and resting secure in our rules and our traditions and our ways. I know I made the point last week, but I'm going to make it again because the word of God is making it. We cannot have an inward focused and a harmful security and pride about our salvation in the church because this is how the Pharisees were. They couldn't see God if it was outside of their religious box. And when things happen outside of our religious box, how easy is it for us to get agitated or for us to get insecure or for us to get grumpy? How do you feel about these recent changes that have been happening within the church? Are you unsettled? Are you insecure? Don't worry. God is doing a good thing here. We need to change. We need to grow. We're trying to evangelize Hampton Roads, and that's the whole point and the purpose of the reorganization that we're doing. There's a lost city and a lost world to save. We've got to be praying about making disciples in Chesapeake, making disciples in Portsmouth, making disciples in Suffolk, 
in Elizabeth City, in Moyoc, and not just praying about it, but eventually praying about meeting in those places. This is the way that we have to be thinking. Not protecting our comfort, protecting our traditions. Well, this is the way that we've always done it. Tony, Ed, Alex, Corey, Dwayne, and, and whomever else it is that's making all these changes. We've taken so much pride in our spiritual position, our discipleship. Are we protecting it so much that we've stopped giving it away? It's like we've arrived or something. It's like we already see and we don't need anything more. I'm talking about all of us now, myself included. If you've got it all figured out, if no one can tell you anything anymore, if you cannot take input from anyone, if you don't seek advice, you don't ask questions, if you're proud of the fact that you can see, then you are in danger of becoming like the Pharisees and being blinded. Please hear me. We've been saved not to admire and take pride in our salvation, but to put it to use and to save others. We don't protect our salvation and put it in a trophy case only to pull out every Sunday and to shine with a polishing cloth and then put it back in the case again. We don't hide it or put it under a bowl. We are the light of the world, Jesus says. And we're meant to use our salvation. Second thought. Keep it simple. Tell the person next to you, let's keep it simple. Church, let's keep it simple. Do we notice how simple this man was? I love this chapter. Because it's just easy peasy for this guy. He does not make it complicated. He had a simple obedience. He went and he washed and he came home seeing. Even though Jesus was just a man to him at that point, he just did what Jesus said. He had a simple testimony. He put mud on my eyes. I washed and now I see. He knew what this prophet had done for him and he stuck to it. He had a simple faith. Who is he, Lord? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Let's not complicate it with our traditions and our religious boxes. If you're willing to confess your blindness, your lack of faith and understanding, if you're willing to confess your dependence on the mercies of God, God will open your eyes and show you the way. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's better to claim blindness and have your eyes opened than to claim sight and be blinded. If you're not a Christian, this does not have to be complicated today. Jesus is the son of God. He was the only one who lived a perfect life that allowed him to be a substitute and a sacrifice for our sins. He died. Not just for our sins. I'm sorry, not just for his sins. Or I shouldn't even say not just for his sins. I should say not for his sins, because he didn't sin. But he died for our sins. 
He was buried and he rose again. He's in heaven right now at the right hand of God. And when you believe this, when you repent, and when you're baptized, your sins will be forgiven. It's that simple. It doesn't have to take months to make this decision. It can be in days. It can be in hours. Last thought. He sees you and he's looking for you. While we may flee, while we may hide from God, even though we may feel disregarded and tossed aside, that hound of heaven relentlessly pursues without tiring and without growing weary. Even though we may be blind and we cannot see him, he sees us as we sit in the corners and in the shadows of life. And when we've been tossed aside by men and left to fend for ourselves, he finds us. He doesn't cast blame. He doesn't throw shade. He offers us healing from our blindness and light so that his works can be displayed in our lives. Let's love him. Let's humbly serve him here in the Hampton Roads Church. Amen. Amen.